HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special breakfast cider edition of Beer Sessions Radio. I'm Jimmy Carboni from Jimmy's Number 43 in the Good Brazil. It's Friday, May 29th, 2015. The show will air at some time this year. And uh, we're here with a special show. Meet the maker, uh, Shaxbury Cider, uh, David from Shaxbury. We've got Gay Howard from United States of Cider. And Ben Watson sitting in uh, from author of Cider Hard and Sweet and uh, the organizer of the Cider Days event. So we actually just had another show with these guys, and I'm thinking Cider on the Brain right now. Um, one reason this series is happening is that Wassail opened on the Lower East Side, and suddenly there is a dedicated cider bar in, in New York City, and I know David came down for that uh, from Shaxbury last night. But I just want to start with a question. You know, we're talking a lot about cider, and, and still when you say it, you have to clarify whether it's hard cider or fermented cider. You know, and I, I still remember, you know, you go into the supermarket and you grab cider. But what do you call that cider? Is it like sweet cider? I mean, how do you, how do you say I'm getting cider versus getting alcoholic cider? Ben? You want me to handle that one? Yeah, you're uh, good at this one. <laughs> well, I mean, in the U.S., we call it sweet cider. If it's cloudy, if it's the cloudy stuff that you buy and, and everybody drinks it, it's the unfermented or pre-fermentation stuff that you just press from apples. We call it sweet cider. But that term only came around after Prohibition um, to differentiate it from hard cider so that orchardists who were still growing apples could actually have a market for things. And that's when refrigeration came in, too, so that's when they could keep it for a little bit longer. I know, I know so, for kids, sometimes they just call it apple juice. Yeah, and in, in Europe they call it apple juice, usually. They usually make a distinction between apple juice and cider. But So let's go back. So before Prohibition, then people were drinking cider, like we're drinking Dave's uh, Shaxbury craft cider this is what people drank and you're saying they even had even kids were drinking a form of fermented cider yeah they were drinking water cider or they call it sometimes or cider kin which is a lower alcohol thing that they used repressed apple pumice from the first pressing they they'd rehydrate it a little bit with a little bit of water they'd press it again and maybe get like two percent alcohol or something like that that would just be for kids and sometimes you also paid off your your farm workers in that too uh because they didn't get the good stuff either. <laughs> Cider kid. So, so Dave, tell us your full name. So you're, you're Shaxbury from Vermont. Tell us your full name and a little backstory on your, your hard ciders. Yeah, so my name is, uh, full name is David Dalgano. And um, I got started in the, in the, Apple, uh, in the Apple world uh, coming right out of college, working at um, a large uh, wholesale dessert apple orchard uh, in Vermont called Sunrise Orchards. It's a, they're a third generation apple growers. Uh, it's the Hodges family. And um, I was uh, looking at uh, value-added apple opportunities and, and um, you know, hard cider just kept rising to the surface as the, as the apple product that's, that was really having sort of a, a revival. So this was back in, 
you know, 2010 and 11. And um, so, I, you know, our first step uh, when I was still working just directly for the orchard was to begin uh, planting traditional English cider apples. And uh, so these are, are apples that have specific aromatics, tannins, acidity, um, other characteristics that that make for a really balanced uh, balanced cider. And, what uh, apples specifically did you start with? Uh, yeah, a few examples. Um, uh, you know, Dabinet, Somerset Red Streak, Yarlington Mills. Um, we want to plant Foxwell soon, but we haven't planted that yet. Uh, an American variety, actually, called Wixen. Um, and um, uh, Ashmead's Kernel and uh, Golden Russet were uh, the first, first thing, five or six that we did. That's a wild name, Ashmead's Kernel. I know. The, uh, the Brits have great, great names for all of their apples. Uh, uh, brown Snout. I mean, they just, they just come up with good stuff. So it was like the 19th century... They're sitting around in their clubs, you know, these lorded dudes, and they're, 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 they're breeding new apples and, you know, taking pride in it, right? It was yeah. a different era. It was a different era. They, 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 you know, created these varieties or they propagated these varieties specifically to make hard cider, so they're, they tend to be quite astringent, so you wouldn't want to necessarily eat them fresh. They dry your mouth out quite quickly. Um, but they grow these apples in, in, in the UK at the level of which we grow, you know, Macintosh and Empire and Honeycrisp and other um, eating apple varieties here in the United States. So they just have, think of it as sort of a Napa Valley of just all of these different cider apple varieties. So tell us about the cider that we're drinking. It just says Shaxbury Craft Cider. Yeah. So this is, um, this is uh, our limited release bottle. So it's a little 500 milliliter bottle. And um, it is a foraged apple cider. Um, so this has kind of a fun story. We, um, we were under the impression that there were no sort of traditional cider apples, uh, you know, commercially available uh, in, in, uh, in Vermont. And um, then we were, we were having, a, you know, a, a cider tasting with a, bu- with a bunch of food producers in, in our area, in, in Middlebury and Cornwall and Shore in Vermont. And a cheesemaker, uh, Michael Lee from Twig Farm Goat Cheese, brought his homebrew cider, um, and we tasted it. And it still to this day, it's one of those moments you just you'll never forget. It was you know it was like the aha moment. Like how, what? How did you possibly make this cider out of Vermont apples? It is impossible to get this level of complexity, these kinds of aromatics, this kind of you know, tannic structure with, you know, the apples that we have. And, and he, he was very kind and he divulged his secret. And in fact, he continues to help us manage what we call our lost apple project today, uh, a few years later. Um, the, the secret was that there are these old, old orchards, like Ben was saying, you know, they've made hard cider for hundreds of years. Many of those trees did not stand the test of time. They were turned into dairy fields. They were turned into sheep pasture or what have you. But some of them uh, are still around today. And, and in fact, their main use is uh, for, for you, know, uh, you know, dairy farmers to have great feed for the deer population so that when they wrap up harvest in November, they, go they, can, they can go <laughs> hunting for a little bit of, uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, and um, uh, so that you know, we talked to uh, you know hunters to help find these old orchards, and basically we go out, we sample these these apples from these trees, we decide if it's something that has aromatics that excite us or not, and then if we do, we tag it and we come back when it's fully fully ripe, you know, and maybe not during hunting season. Just before hunting season, we're still very careful and wearing bright, bright orange. And uh, we, um, we harvest from these old, old orchards all around the Champlain Valley. And so this particular cider here is made from 35 different apples. Um, we have ended up, we ended up loving five of them so much that we uh, took cuttings from the trees and we are beginning to propagate those with Sunrise Orchards, the orchard where I 
used to work. Do there you are main know what those partners. five are, or are you just picking them as apples we liked? We haven't been able to identify the variety, but we don't care. We're recommending yeah. them anyway. Uh, you know, the apple is one of the most diverse food plants uh, on Earth, and every time a seed is planted, it it doesn't reflect the DNA of its fruit, so it's, it's sort of a new thing. So these these varieties are are not known varieties. They were just either planted by a farmer back in the day, or you know, oftentimes too, that original tree didn't make it. So this is an offshoot of what was originally maybe the rootstock. Um, so not all of the trees are 150 years old, but certainly, you know, there there are elements that 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 are part of the original. Ben, have you interacted a lot with the Shaxbury guys? A little bit, yeah, and I've tried some of their stuff before. They've come to Cider Days a couple of times, and uh, they're doing really interesting stuff. This, to me, the cider that we're drinking, you know, really, really reminds me of a Spanish or Basque cider. The the flavor and the aroma of it, there's a real um, funkiness to it and a barnyard quality, and it, but it's very fruity, too. A little tart. Yeah, a little tart and a little bit, little acetic, but not too, not too over the top. And it, it's kind of like the tradition in the Basque country, which David could probably talk about too. But it's, it's, you know, they've got varieties over there that <clears throat> they don't know what they are. You know, it's a lot of families who grow these things, and these these apples just grow up, and a lot of them are seedling varieties. And you know, if they're good for cider, they use them in the blend. And if they're no good, you know, whatever, they just take the trees down. But yeah, it's a very natural kind of cider making. You want to open something else, Dave? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a great transition, perhaps to talk about the, uh, you know, our Basque cider, if that's uh, uh, of interest. Yeah. You said you had different partners. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know. Just to take a quick step back, I would say the mission of Shaxbury, like our our goal, what drives us and helps us make decisions is we want to show how the apple, how amazing the apple is and and how many different flavor profiles for cider you can create with just apples, like without adding anything else other than apples. And uh, we learned quickly uh, early on that that to do that, um, you needed access to a whole slew of, of different uh, apple varieties. Let me just say that this, yeah. what we're pouring, we had tried earlier in another show, Albemarle and Uncle John's, yeah. and they were very like tasty. Your, yours are like austere, and, and this color, it, it looks like, like liquid gold. I mean, this is like <laughs> something that only kings would have drinking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the the uh, the gold color comes from the, uh, the the varieties of apples that we use. Again, cider apple varieties tend to have um, a, a darker hue, uh, so it's one quick identity. The other thing that's unmistakable about you know when you have these specific apples is that you uh, the nose is just a first indication that there's. This is so unique. The aroma is very mm-hmm. very savory. So, you know, this cider is a part of our collaboration series. Again, it's an effort to show how the apple can be just as fantastic as the grape to make, you know, all these different styles of, of you know, of wine. And so we work with a producer in the Basque region of Spain. They're, um, they've been around since the 1600s. The current family, the Otaño family, has been running it for five generations. So these people know, they know what's going on. Um, they, um, uh, so our collaborators, Ainara Otanio of Petrategi Sagardoa, and um, we uh, went there to basically be able to create a Basque cider out of Basque apples in the Basque region, and um, we now bottle it even there, um, and uh, it becomes a part of our portfolio, part of our effort to say, you know, this is what cider can taste like. You know, it can taste like uh, maybe a, this is people often equivalent, uh, you know, people often uh, compare it to sour beer or perhaps, a, you know, an orange wine, like a mineral acidic orange wine. So you guys are like exploring different cider cultures. Yeah. In addition to making our own cider, uh, you know, in in Vermont and New England, we we are we are very passionate about finding other niches of the world 
that make great cider from you know family-owned orchards, family-owned cideries, and um, and having that as part of. Um, and then someone on your team is like going to England, right? Right now. Yeah. So my my uh, my most amazing business partner Colin and his wife Katie are getting on a plane right now to um, head to England, and um, they're going to be blending our 2014 um, Hereford uh, uh, English cider. And um, and that will. Um, so you're like a gypsy cider maker. We're, we made we're cider in Basque. We're making cider in England. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this term is very common in the beer world, the gypsy brewer, and um, that is definitely a part of our uh, fabric, part of our ethos. You know, we um, we do we make cider in Vermont, in England, in Spain. We're we're building a partnership in France now as well. Um, I have aspirations to go back to where the apple came from in Kazakhstan and find some of the original originals and some someone there everywhere there's fruit there's somebody who's turning it into sounds like a movie you know and uh, we'll uh, we're working on that I have a, a Kazakh friend who has a friend who does a lot of apple research and uh, we're anywhere there's apples we're, we're looking to see what kind of cider um, comes from it the- where did the first apples come from, Ben? Was it Kazakhstan and that part of the world? Yeah, that part of the world. I mean, it's it's there are wild apple species all over the world. In fact, we have three or four, maybe uh, maybe four species of crab apples that are that are not the same as domestic apples that we would know today in North America. But really, the the domesticated apple came from Central Asia, like Western China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and around in there. It was on the Silk Road, and that's how it came. East to Persia and uh, around in, in, in the Near East originally. So what happened? People just ate this, the apples and the seeds ended up. No, actually, they... the, the theory is there's a guy named Barry Juniper who works for worked at Oxford, and he he uh, his theory is that bears actually selected the apples because mm-hmm. it's such a sparsely populated <laughs> mountainous area that there are wild apple orchards all over the place over there. There used to be far more, but. Um, and he said, you know, bears selected the best-tasting apples and did what bears usually do in the woods. And, you know, they, they had their own little fertilizer along with the seeds and over the course of thousands of years probably developed these better-tasting wild varieties. And then it was spread by horses that were coming on the Silk Road to the, to the east. But that's such a great story sequence that these apples are there and these different animals like are picking and choosing their favorites and then wandering off down their way and yeah they did us a favor yeah usually you think about corn or something like that that was completely human so we don't we don't have to do any adam and eve references which i think is the dumbest use of an apple bears and horses yeah i like that and some deer that's what you guys are doing so shaxbury you guys are like going back old school going out to england france spain yeah yeah But what about the Vermont cider culture? Because, like, I met these kids in Barn, Vermont. There's a little, it's like a farm of of hippies called Fable Farm. I don't know if you know them. It's like they rent rent old farms. And and I I tried some great cider that they had made a few years ago. It was like there's their local cider, but they put it in barrels. So it still had this kind of, like, sour, tart, you know, freshness, but it was rounded out by being in a barrel. Is is a lot of that going on up in Vermont? Yeah. um, Almost like communes and things. Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely a very um, uh, you know collegial communal culture around around cider in Vermont. Uh, the Fable Farm uh, folks make a cider that uh, would fall kind of in the foraged apple um, uh, cider category to the extent that that's, that's can be defined as a category. Um, and they're making some really really. Thoughtful and, and, and impressive ciders. Um, we are, uh, you know, the, the the whole industry is just at this exciting moment. We're we're forming um, the Vermont Cider Makers Association in Vermont, which sounds sort of boring, like oh, you know, an, an association, you know. Like, uh, but the reality is, it's really exciting. Now there's uh, a home that we have, uh, you know. Uh, to help bring new cider makers into the fold, to help people understand how to navigate regulation, to help promote as an industry. Um, and um, we're having our first annual... Even It even pours good. Yeah. This is, um, this is our coming out July uh, 1st, 2015. And um, nice. it's a uh, nice, light-bodied... Um, 
some lightly barrel-aged uh, Vermont apple cider. It says farmhouse. Hey, you know what? Th- this is a good point of departure. Let's make a toast and Cheers. drink this cider. We'll take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. And this one's called Wake Up by Eula. We'll be right back. In 1996, Elknife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Yeah, we're at Jimmy's number 43 doing the special breakfast cider, and uh, people come and go, and, you know, we're here in the East Village, and we're drinking cider, which is cool. So, talking about why New England, why is that a great place for cider? It makes a lot of sense, David. I mean, it's beautiful. I'm from New England, and, you know, actually, when I grew up, uh, the the house that I grew up in, the, the yards behind us were built around 1900, and every house had a cider tree, an apple tree, and a pear tree. Mm-hmm. And by, like, the 70s, no one really appreciated them because they had these gnarly fruits. And eventually everyone just cut them down. But now looking back, I, I think that that was probably what people expected from their property mm-hmm. was to have some fruit trees. And they, they were meant for making ciders probably, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was um, originally a part of the Homestead Act, I believe, that if, if, you, um, if you acquired land through the Homestead Act, you were actually required to plant yep. these fruits. 10 or 20 apple, apple trees, trees. yeah. yeah they were, that's a part of the story of John Chapman, who's also from your part of Massachusetts, too. Johnny Appleseed Lemonster. came from Lemonster, Mass., and uh, he ran Frontier Nurseries out in what was then you know, practically wilderness in the Ohio Valley and Indiana and around there. And he sold a lot of seedling apple trees to homesteaders who would get free land from the government. The government said, take this land, all you have to do is prove that you're you know, settling it or improving it. That was the only, and one of the ways that you improved it was planting apple trees even before you built your house. And uh, so there was a lot of cider being made. I like that. That's a definitely an improvement, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So um, cool is cider culture, man. So um, the other thing I want to talk about is is, is how do you know that, that cider is good? And it keeps coming up, and guys like Steve Wood from uh, Farm Hill, we talk about a lot, is like, why, why isn't there some kind of label that I, as a, a consumer, or even as a buyer, I mean, I'm buying wholesale all the time, ciders, and I, and I get fooled sometimes. There's, there's cider products that are really like water and sugar and chemicals. What I want is, is the real cider. And I know, Kay, what did you say? You said, what, look at the websites, and, and what do you want to look for? When I'm trying to figure out cider makers that I have not met yet or haven't tried their cider, I think that if you go to the website and they're talking about their apples and their process very honestly and openly, you know they're making a serious attempt to make real cider. If they're very vague, you just don't know what you're getting. And it's also like cider, it's, it's kind of like a rural agricultural product. So if someone's like, one time a, a salesman came in and said, I got this new cider from Maine, and it was in a can, and I started asking, where are you making? He didn't want to tell me. He finds me making in Boston. So if you're, if you're from Maine making cider in Boston, it sounds like a factory product. You don't really want that. I mean, what, what are other ways to, 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 to know that a cider is a, a good or real cider? I mean, is it case by case, Ben? It's, you got you to taste it. But, but, it's, but the other thing is, you know, read the label. I mean, it's as simple as reading the label. If you're, if you're looking at the label and the first ingredient is water, and then malic acid or something or whatever. Oh, the first ingredient should always be 
hard cider or apple juice or something like that, regardless of what kind of style that you like. I mean, there are, there are draft ciders that are out there sold in six packs, which are okay and they're they're drinkable. It's not that you know they're not good, um, but if they're not made from real juice, that's the thing I would I would really look for. Make sure it's made from real juice. Not everybody can grow their own apples, or not everybody should grow their own apples. Not everybody is a good orchardist. Um, there are plenty of people who are making good cider who buy in apples from from good growers. Well, I know David, you have something here. Um, like when I've talked to Steve Wood in the past, we talked about things like saying there's a real cider label. I know they've started an informal movement called the American Fine Cider, but you actually have on your label it says "Discover True Cider" trademark, uh, Shackberry. So true cider too. So you, you guys are, are thinking along those lines, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely, you know, real cider, true cider. Um, we we feel like uh, we feel like there are at least you know uh, uh, people who are working with with fresh juice, uh, and that's you know the primary ingredient. That's fundamentally something something different than people who are using non apples as as the primary. Uh, or even if you're using. You know, real apple juice. I mean, the the difference between a good cider to me and a you know indifferent or not that great cider is the varieties. It really goes back to the apples. If you're using, if all you've got to work with is dessert varieties of apples, that's what you're going to use. But those people tend to adjust their cider a lot more because what they've got is fruit that doesn't really create a very interesting cider on its own, like, you know, the main varieties like Fuji or or Gala or Macintosh or things like that, they aren't really, the all by themselves, they aren't really the greatest cider. You really have to use good apples, whether they're wild apples or whether they're historic apples from North America or Europe. I really feel like that's really important. It all starts with the apples. I, I totally agree. Um, again, our, our ethos is around finding incredible apples having the hard work happen in the orchard and then doing our best to protect and and elaborate those those beautiful flavor profiles that come from apples that that have the aromatics that make for something that makes you you know think of a food pairing or makes you want to want to drink it um, at a nice dinner party or that kind of so thing. let's talk about so like like for example Let's talk about why you're in New York now. So Wasale, the new cider bar on Lower East Side, it's kind of set in a standard for, you know, talking about labels and how do you know about good cider. I feel like if you're on the list at Wasale, you must be a, a real cider. I mean, w- what is it for you guys if you're in Vermont? Why, why would you come to New York City to, to appear at a, a small cider bar? I mean, w- what's the value of that for you? And, and what does it mean for you, you know, as a, as a maker coming to New York? Yeah, I mean... Uh For me, it stumped him. <laughs> since I was, um, uh, you know, again, I'm from Kansas City originally, and, and, and New York City and Boston and the, you know, the great cities of, of America have always had a certain romance um, to them. They, they, especially, you know, New York defines it defines the trends of the day. It's, you know, it's the leading fine wine city in the world. And so to think that in the city that has one of the most advanced fine wine traditions in the world is now opening up its arms to cider or apple wine to the extent that we now have a place, a home, a place that sells just our product, the cider, uh, is a huge statement uh, across all industries because, again, people... You know, for for better or worse, look to New York City as as a trendsetter. Uh, so, the fact that there's a, a bar here that sells exclusive, you know, pretty much exclusively cider, uh, is a, is a huge um, inspiration for. Well, what did you guys do last night? So you had like the me. cider in a barrel. Was there some special uh, barrel tasting or? Yeah. So in the Basque region of Spain. Uh, this variety is uh, again has a little bit of that funk, a little bit of that barnyard that um, that Ben was mentioning earlier, and part of it is uh, in the Basque region. You you would go into a barrel room, and and 
cider is served straight out of these beautiful 15,000 liter, very large chestnut barrels or, or smaller chestnut barrels, depending on the size of the, of the cider company. And it shoots out of the barrel and you catch it in your glass. And that, that process of having it caught in your glass and break against the side aerates it and releases all its aromatics. And so my, my business partner engineered this system to be able to basically catch cider from a barrel and, and create the, the same effect that you have at the cider houses of the Basque region. And um, it's a lot of fun. It makes a very delicious mess. So you guys are there last night. So the floor. I did not go. Ben, was ben there. tell, us, tell us what it's like. What's the experience? They we have, we've done the high. The things I don't want to do on there, like there's, you have this cool little thing about throwing, throwing cider. cider. Throw cider. That, that's going to be in a video soon. Check that out. Yeah. But tell us about catching cider off of a barrel. Well, when you're catching it off of the, the huge barrels, and I went to Spain, I had a really good opportunity to go to Spain last uh, August with a bunch of cider makers, and we, we toured around in the Basque country, including at Paris year, the, the Folks, Petrotegi, Petr- Petr- sorry, yeah. uh, the the producer that's working with Shaxbury, and um, you know they open up a barrel. They have a spigot on the barrel, and it does shoot out. And the the reason is they're not carbonating their ciders, so this aerates the cider, and it gives it a little bit of um, you know probably we should have been pouring this from about a foot above the glass when we poured it because it gives it a little liveliness to it, and and in fact you you only pour about two inches of it. And then you drink it off continuously while it still is a little bit sparkling from the from the thing, and it's a great tradition. And they look at you funny if you if you have like a cocktail party kind of thing and just have it in your glass. They say your cider is dead if if it goes still because they don't want to drink it that they don't want you to drink it that way. They want it to show off to best advantage. And it's a fascinating culture, and it's very food friendly too. The Spanish ciders. It goes well with almost everything. At, per- at Petrotegi, they, they serve it with um, ribeye steak, which no, most people in the, the U.S. don't what, think of red meat. What's the place called again? Petrotegi? Petrotegi. And what is that place? It's a, it's a Basque cider producer. Um, and, uh, and, and they have ribeye steaks. They serve rib- in their. They have a restaurant in there where you can eat at long tables, and that's the thing. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Another <laughs> cider field trip. So cheeses, spicy chorizo, you know, very typical dishes. Uh, tuna. They have a great tuna up there. Tuna empanadas is a classic dish. Potato, uh, sort of uh, tortillas, potato tortillas. All this stuff is very, very traditional food pairings and stuff that most Americans haven't experienced and wouldn't necessarily think like this. Most ciders would not go with red meat. The Spanish ciders have that sort of meaty, cheesy, funky quality to them that seem to go with, with the It's almost meats. like you want to have the, the beef in your mouth with yeah. the cider, you know, and swish it around. This is going to be awesome. We're going to come back and talk more about the Ben Watson Cider Tour in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special breakfast cider, now lunch cider session. We're at Jimmy's number 43. It's May 2015. This show will air in June or July sometime. We're doing a lot of great cider shows. Wassail, the specialty cider bar, opened up in the Lower East Side, and uh, a lot of cider makers and personalities are coming to New York now, so we're going to try to catch them all on shows uh, for the rest of this year. And thanks to Gay Howard from United States of Cider for helping me put this show together. So we got, we got David from Shack, Shackberry. Um, it's a small Vermont cider maker, but you're, you're interesting because you're also making like gypsy ciders in, in England and, and Spain and uh, even France. But how did you start doing that? It doesn't sound that different than what brewers are doing. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I, I've heard that there's not really enough cider trees and fruit in this country to support the demand. So it sounds like you're really smart about what you're doing. But tell us more about these, these trips and journeys you know, to other countries, and, and how, actually what the process you have to do if you're making this out in another country, how do you get it into America? You know, it's, it's a lot of work you're doing, man. You're not just buying Chinese concentrate and mixing with water and stuff. Right, right, right. 
Uh, yeah, so what in initially motivated us is just what you said, Jimmy. We wanted to work with traditional cider apples, and uh, frankly, we couldn't find them. And we were just too impatient to, uh, to wait for our trees to, to mature all the way. Uh, we'll get our first harvest of English cider apples this fall, but uh, several years ago, and we wanted to get going, we, we thought, you know, well, while we can't find those trees here, they grow in great abundance in England... France and Spain, and they have these long centuries-old traditions in, in those countries. Uh, so why not take um, take a play from the from the wine sector and 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 go to where the trees are that we want to work with and where there are in great abundance. And so we took a trip. Uh, the first one was spring of 2013. Uh, my business partner Colin he went to Spain and France. Or sorry, Spain and England. And um, in England, we we got connected to our now partner there, Simon Day, who's in the Herefordshire region of England, vis-a-vis uh, three other people. So it was like we had a friend who connected us to somebody who worked insider, who connected us to another person insider, who said, "Oh, you got to meet with this guy. I think his name is." is Simon. He just got this award <laughs> from the BBC and he's real new but he's making really interesting stuff and you've got to go check him out. And, and he, this fellow had actually never even tasted his ciders. So Colin went and literally you go to the Herefordshire region and when you're driving up to this orchard I'm talking it's a so-called two-lane road that barely has enough space for one car. And you're winding through these and there's huge these tall, you know, stone fences on both sides of you, and you're driving on the wrong side of the frickin' car, and, you know, you're lost. The GPS is sending you through all these roundabouts, and, you know, but lo and behold, you know, Simon was out there, and um, he was just crazy enough to partner up with a couple of young dudes from America who had who had an idea but didn't know a, a, a darn thing about you know, importing cider. We didn't have the license then. We didn't understand, you know, we didn't know much about, about you know, the, the, the TTB and freight forwarding and dealing with, you know, uh, big containers of cider and, and shipping over the sea and going through customs and all the things that, that we now have in place. Um, but it's also not rocket science, you know. There are people out there to help you solve these problems. We're in a global economy, so... You know, people are shipping stuff across borders all the time, and you know it's it's not rocket, it's not rocket science, science. You know, it's just, it's just transportation, yeah, logistics. Yeah, let's talk about so these last two ciders. Uh, um, so we're getting more like traditional stuff for like American English. Right, you got the farmhouse, yeah, and the classic, yeah. and and tell us if I said a tradition, I just said something that I didn't fact check. Traditional cider, I guess I meant what they would have made in New England. Or could I say what they would have made in England? I think the English and New England styles are similar or not, Ben? Um, you know, it, again, it depends a lot on what apples you're using. And probably they wouldn't have been using a lot of uh, English, in the old days, not a lot of English bitter apples like we would now. A lot of people plant those bitter sweet and bitter sharp varieties over here. The classic English ones have been imported over here. But they would have been using varieties that had been brought from England a lot. And, a, and the really fascinating thing, we were talking before about the climate in New England and the Northeast. We have a climate in a lot of areas where we ripen apples really, really well. And they get very high flavor because we get those cool autumn nights. It gets really cold at night, and then it gets warm during the day in the fall. That is perfect apple ripening weather. And in parts of England, they don't have that. So a lot of those English apples, when they come over here, they're like, Wow, this is amazing, like the Ashmead's kernel, which is one of my favorite apples. But, you know, I think they would be... I think so it would be very England's different styles. better than England, you think? Well, for some Could apples. And, in, and England's better than the U.S. for some apples there. I mean, including a couple of our apples probably grow better in England than they do where they originated. But, you know, I, I'd say that the styles are pretty different. I mean, this is this what we're drinking now is a classic uh, West Country kind of Herefordshire cider. But it's not as strong or as funky or as barnyardy as as you can usually find over there. This is a little bit maybe more towards the North American taste than I don't know. David may disagree with me, but 
it's not quite as funky or as meaty or as cheesy as that Spanish cider that we had, or or than most English ciders. Yeah, talking about England, so I know you, you run the cider days in Massachusetts, but from what I've heard, there's there's so many ongoing cider festivals or cider and music festivals in England. You want to tell a little more about that culture, the, the English cider culture? Yeah, the oldest continuous one, I think, is the Royal Bath and West Show in Somerset in, in Western England, and that dates back to about the 1850s, I think. Um, but there are other ones, too, a lot of other cider festivals that they do now, including the, um, they just had the Royal Bath and West a week or so ago, and they also did the uh, Welsh Cider and Perry Society, and cider is very big in like the border country in, in Wales. So that's a fun event. They're very, very different. Royal Bath and West is like an agricultural show. And and they have a lot of old guys in tweed jackets and, and they, they judge all these ciders um, from they get submitted to them from around the world, but mostly from around the country. And then the Welsh thing is a very it's very reflective <coughs> of where cider is going because there are a lot of young people who go to it. It's kind of a rock and roll atmosphere, it's a lot of fun. And uh, so it, it sort of spans the whole category of, you know, really, really old school, traditional cider to really modern young people who are, the, who are increasingly turning to cider because they really love cider. Young people and about half men, half women, it seems like. It's great. Mm-hmm. Well, England and tweed jackets, <laughs> they have crappy weather, so they have to wear tweed, right? Yeah. Probably. But like, you know, Tom Oliver, so he, he makes great cider in Perry in, in yeah. England. And I also know that he's a, he's a, a music tour manager. He, he tours the world. It, is being a cider maker? Does that mean that you can kind of just let the trees be for a while and, and go do other things? Like you, you don't have to like check on your trees every day. And well, the reason the how reason, does that work? Yeah, the, the reason, orchard manager. Well, the reason that the reason that people started making cider over there and also over here too. Another thing, everybody was you know a lot of ninety percent of people were farmers, and cider was a great thing to do. Because you were done with most of your year. By the time you were making cider in late October, early November, you weren't having to put as much work into the farm. So you had this thing to do that would create a product, but it wasn't during the main part of your season. So it was very much a, a you know, uh, sort of rhythm of the seasons kind of thing and, uh, and almost a celebration of the, of the harvest season. And you really didn't have to do a whole lot on the rest of your farm. Is that, that is that for you, David? But the flip side, so during the growing season, do you, how much attention do you have to pay to your, your apple trees before harvest time? Yeah, well, um, we're... You don't have to milk them every day. <laughs> you don't have to milk them every day, but you do have to shepherd the the crop through kind of thick and thin through, you know, from roughly May when bloom happens all the way till... Uh, October when harvest happens uh, and then as soon as you think you're done uh, as soon as leaf fall happens in November you're able to start pruning and then you can prune all winter uh, right up until April and May when you're starting to, to pick again so it uh, depending on the size of your orchard um, orchardists work work very hard and it is uh, a year round and very grueling um, occupation it's we we like to romanticize uh, the farmer and uh, we like to romanticize you know orchards, but um, it's it's one of the hardest uh, vocations out there. And and I'll be clear, we're not currently um, we don't currently own our own orchard. We partner with other orchards, so we um, we are firm believers that the hard work happens in the orchard, and, and we have the luxury of everything worked well there to um, just protect the flavors that they've created and so how do you gather the apples let's say let's say you're in Vermont and you're going to some Mm -hmm. area and you're getting the apples what do you do yeah so it depends for us on the cider Uh, so with the with the lost apple project um, what we're doing is first step is to just clear all of the brush around these trees because again they're they're in a abandoned parts of dairy fields or they're, they're not maintained at all so there's a lot of you know burdock and brush and brambles and so we got to kind of clear around the tree and then um, we set out tarps and we have this very very fancy device it is a PVC pipe with a piece of rebar duct taped to it and a <laughs> hook shape and 
you know, we get up and uh, we find a nice limb and we shake the apples onto the uh, tarps because we're not we're not too concerned about the the outside aesthetic of the apple. We're only concerned about the internal fruit. And we're pressing the apples in the fall right after we pick them. So even if they get maybe a little nick on the way down, we're not storing these apples. They're getting pressed right away. So we can... Um, You're not shipping them from Chile to New York. We're not shipping them from Chile to supermarkets. Or, you know, to supermarkets. Yeah, we're just putting them right in the press. So we shake them. They fall into the tarp. We bunch them in the middle. We pick them up as quickly as we can, put them into... Uh, you know, a, a little bushel box, and then we haul that sometimes about a half mile back to the truck, and we do that till we can do it no more, or the tree is, has been totally harvested, and, and we're off to the next one. And uh, that happens pretty. Anyway, you're taking the tarp, you put them in the truck, and you drive it. Take it to yeah, the press. Take it to the to the press. We let them sweat, so we we leave them out for about one to two weeks, sometimes three weeks, to let those sugars just really develop all the way they get pressed do you think that that, that happens better af- after you've harvested them let, yeah let them sweat so we're yeah sweating happens take notes people sweating happens <laughs> I might make cider this fall why yeah. not come on we'll bring that a little can, uh, apples we'll bring can you lose a carboy. up to like 10% of their water weight if you if you age them for a couple of weeks and that's what they mean by sweating you sweat out in the water by by letting them sit out in a fairly you know, not cold atmosphere, but a fairly warm atmosphere at room temperature because they they respire, apples breathe, and they can lose, you know, a good percentage of their water and concentrate those sugars like David's talking about. Gay, have you been to a cider harvesting? I have not been to any sort of apple harvesting or picking. I absolutely should. Come, come, I absolutely should. Please. be fascinating. We have tons of volunteers. We're, 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 especially for the Lost Apple Project, we have... High schoolers in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont who are picking for us. We've got other, you know, uh, foragers in Southern Vermont who are who are bringing us stuff. I mean, it's, it's you know, a, we, we knew about like in the old days, we had, we had armies of students going to the south of France and helping with grape harvest. Yeah, and the same thing for for hop harvest. You know, same kind of thing. It's labor intensive. Yeah. But how many people do you need to help you with your your apple harvest? You know, for us, it's at least a two person. Uh, operation at any time, uh, at minimum. And it's not a hundred uh, people. It's not a hundred. Not yet. Sorry, guys. Yet, disappointed. <laughs> All these yet. people are going to write and say, "Why wow, we want to go up to oh, Vermont, well, help Shaxbury?" I mean, it could be a hundred. It's just not a hundred yet. Yeah, we're ready though. If you guys want to come pick apples, we'll uh, we'll put you to work. It's hard work though. It's hard in terms work. of the harvest, I've done that. I used to do yeah. that in junior high school. I used yeah. to pick apples as a not a good way to make a living. Yeah. But it's something good for your like, 13, 14 year old kids. Exactly. But for you, Ben, too. So with so with regard to the the harvesting season, so things like cider days and cider weeks, mm-hmm. you, you you really have to be sensitive to when, when the cider makers are. are doing their harvest right yeah and also when they're available too the reason that you know if in a perfect world we would have done cider days a little bit earlier you know because when the weather isn't quite on the cusp of being sometimes really nasty and in new england but we do it the first weekend of november every year because that was the first we wanted to encourage orchardists and cider makers to come and that's about the time of year that they have a little bit of extra time and they can afford to to come Right then, before then, they're busy selling apples, and and so that's why we keyed it to that. And also, the best cider apples tend to be later cider apples anyway, uh, that are that are available in October or even early November, right before frost hits. So those are the kinds that uh, that, that we want to encourage. You know, Ben and David, so we're having the show. Uh, you brought brought along a, a few books. Just tell us about this. We, we talked about your book, but mention this book and the author because. I, yeah. I haven't really seen that many cider books, and I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about them. Well, this is a book not just about cider, but it's about um, uh, f- lost flavors of, of different different foods, like uh, uh, different plants, different apples. He, he is an apple grower, David Buchanan, up in Maine. Uh, so it's called Taste Memory. Taste Memory is the is the is the uh, is the name of the book, and we we published this at my company. I edited this book about two or three years ago, and it's a really good read. It sort of explains why he's into things and why heritage foods matter and why we should try to preserve them. And David's done a great job in doing that on his own. He's 
he's done a lot with small fruits too, not just apples, stuff like that. He was, he was talking about preserving certain varieties of apples. Are they varieties or varietals? Well, either one is fine, but a varieties you usually call it. If you're making a liquor out of it, then it would be a varietal cider. But um, he talks about going with John Bunker, who's a friend of ours up in Maine, and going fruit exploring. And most people don't know that term, but there's a whole organization called the North American Fruit Explorers, or NAFEX, that's been going for years and years. But you don't have to belong to NAFEX to do it. Sounds you just, like a motorcycle you club do what, in you, Texas. Yeah, With you do what, you do what you do what David is doing and the Shaxbury guys are doing. You go out and you find apple trees that are worthy of interesting for some reason or, or have qualities that would make good cider or, or that, that might be good dessert apples that somebody just forgot about. And that uh, the great thing about apple trees is we talked about the Harrison apple a little bit. and But they're, uh, apple trees, if they're a big apple tree... They can live for 100 years or 200 years. So even if you lose it for a while and people don't pay any attention to it, it's out there. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to stay out there. And people rediscover these things all the time, these old varieties, if you go looking for them. And so, that's awesome. And what's fun about that is, for me, there's, uh, you know, I, I, studied, I studied history. I've always been a, a big reader of history. And... Um, there's this real <laughs> sense that you are deeply connected to uh, to people who have lived off the land in this area for for you know fifty, hundred, two hundred years, and that you are literally consuming the same thing that they consumed two hundred years ago. There's a there, it creates this you know this title of this book you know David Buchanan's book Taste Memory. I mean it. it it's like you're drinking history, you know. You're, it creates a deep, deep connection. And now that there's an interest in local foods and place-based foods too. There's a new emphasis on this because a lot of the apples that we've almost lost that are very rare are very local apples, and that's the way it used to be. A lot of farmers used to find these apples and say, "Huh, this is a really good apple," and it would become locally famous in maybe one state or one county or one town even. And it would be the local apple that people would really like. And now we grow apples. Somebody wants to do a Honeycrisp. Well, everybody wants to grow Honeycrisp. And let's rip out all of our trees and plant Honeycrisp all over the country. But in the past, it was always place-based. And that's how we discovered a lot of these great varieties. And those are the kinds of apples like Black Oxford up in Maine that we're trying to really repopularize now. (coughs) Wow, this is an amazing show. You guys are really great. Uh, I'd like to thank, again, Gay Howard, thank you so much thank for uh, helping put the me. show together, United States of Cider Blog. What I love is your Twitter hashtag, at HelloCider. That's a we, friendly we one. We like the cider. Good ones. And uh, David from Shaxbury in Vermont and Ben Watson, Cider Days, and an author and editor. I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors who have helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Not only do they distribute beer, they also distribute a lot of a lot of great ciders, including Farnham Hill from New Hampshire, which is some yes. of our favorites. And so thanks to David Dolganow of Shaxbury Cider, author Ben Watson, for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our engineer, Jack Hensley, who's making this all sound good. And thanks for listening. See you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.